tomorrow night. And don't forget to sign up for your chili recipe and uh, enter into the contest, the chili, chili making contest. And then be sure to pray for Dan Pilcher's brother, Mike, who has just had some issues um, with an accident. And be sure to be praying for him. He had some broken ribs and a couple other medical issues. And he's in Santa Rosa. And so be sure to be praying for Mike Pilcher, Dan's brother. And I think Dan's not here this morning because he's sick. So I know that that flu bug or cold bug or maybe not the, well, maybe some people have had the flu. But definitely cold, sniffles, coughs. Uh, we're hearing from people. So... One note of correction about last week. I said something in error, and uh, uh, I had a brother point it out to me, which was a good thing, so please feel free. Um, I mentioned um, Martin Luther, um, I mentioned something to the degree of there were seven sects of popes, seven levels of popes, and I didn't mean to say that. It was seven sects of um, the monastery, and Martin Luther picked his hard, picked the hardest one. So just a little point of correction, not a big deal. So as normal, this is going to be um, hopefully discussion-oriented. Feel free. I know people are getting the cobwebs out up early this morning and out here for Sunday school, so we want to make sure you know that if you have a question or a comment or something to add that's edifying, please feel free to do that. And let me offer a word of prayer, and then we'll jump right into this this morning. So, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your history. You are the God who we hear from the book of Isaiah. You know the end from the very beginning. And as we think about you and your greatness and your majesty, and we think about your sovereign rule over all of your creation, from the very begin to the end, from the very end to the beginning, we are just in awe. And Lord, we're awe that you would allow us to be in Christ, and we're just in awe that we could worship you, a holy God, and you have made us righteous because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're just grateful. We're just grateful children. And so help us this morning as we consider Martin Luther and church history, help us to consider this man that you used because of his efforts to stand on the word of God. So help us, Lord, to, to think deeply about him and to be encouraged and to be people ourselves who stand on the holy word of God. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about Martin Luther. It is Reformation Month, and tomorrow, October 31st, most of us, many of us, will celebrate Reformation Day. October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis against the door of Wittenberg because he was protesting indulgences. And many say he wasn't a Christian at the time and simply wanted to be about debate and discussion about the abuses of indulgences. Remember, indulgences were simply those Indulgences were, 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 indulgences were the Catholic practice of getting forgiven, getting forgiven of sin um, by performing indulgences. 
And we talked about that a little bit last week. So this morning, we want to talk about Martin Luther. And this morning's topic is entitled, Here I Stand. Now, this is a, a message that I, uh, this is an outline. The outline that you're holding is an outline from Steve Lawson in his 2017 Ligonier Ministry Lecture, Standing for the Truth. I listened to this over and over and over, and I thought it was so edifying. I'm using his outline, and I would suggest, if you have time, I can get you the address of where this lecture is found. But the outline is what we're using today, and if you, if you, want, to be, if you want to be expanded in your thinking about this outline, go find this, and I'll help you if you, um, if you need, but you want to listen to this about Martin Luther from Steve Lawson. The Roman Catholic Church, it, it teaches that the Pope is infallible when he speaks from the position of authority on a particular issue or doctrine. The Catholic Church calls that speaking ex-cathedral. So the questions that we're going to ask today and we're going to address is, where did Martin Luther stand? And the other question is, why did he stand there? Where did Martin Luther stand? And most of us know the answer to this. He stood on scripture. And in fact, the mantra of the day was sola scriptura, on scripture alone. This is where Martin Luther stood. So Luther stood against the ecclesiastical system of his time, the Roman Catholic Church. He stood against a thousand years of tradition. He stood against theologians. He stood against scholars. He stood against debaters. He stood against lawyers. He stood against councils. He stood against church authorities. He stood for the truth against the world. And there was a Latin phrase, and I, I, I can't really repeat it because I don't know Latin. Martin Luther, by the way, his father sent him to school at five to learn Latin. He was a very educated man. But Martin Luther stood against the world. He stood on sola scriptura, scripture alone, he came to understand this. It was in April of 1521 when Luther was summoned by Charles V to the Diet of Worms. He thought he was going there for a debate. He thought he was going there for an open dialogue about indulgences. He thought he was going there to be able to express himself and to be able to say, hey, this is what I really believe the Bible says. Little did Martin Luther know he was actually going for his own heresy trial. And so Martin Luther, he stood before the ecclesiastical council or the church council of the Roman Catholic Church, and he was asked these two questions. In fact, when he walked into the room, at the center of the room, there was a table with all of his books on top of it, and when he walked into that, when he stood there before the council, they asked him these two questions. Number one, are these your books? And then number two, will you recant? Are these your books and will you recant? Will you renounce your foolishness, Martin Luther? This is what the Catholic Church's position on Martin Luther was. Well, Luther asked for a day to be able to give a proper response to the council. And so Martin Luther was excused. And the next day, Martin Luther came in and he gave his famous quote, 
Here's what Martin Luther said in response to that counsel. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the Pope and the councils because they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. So help me God. Amen. This was Martin Luther's famous quote. So where did Martin Luther stand? Where did he stand? Be clear on this. He stood on sola scriptura. Scripture alone. And so, so this morning we want to look at these six principles of Scripture and understand that Martin Luther, this was his position and where he stood. Number one, where Martin Luther stand was on the divine inspiration of Scripture. Divine inspiration. I would invite you to just look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 and look at verse 16 and 17 with me. The divine inspiration of Scripture is where Martin Luther stood. Martin Luther came to understand that Scripture is God-breathed. God didn't just breathe into a book, a dead book. God didn't just breathe onto this and make it alive. That's not what he did. God didn't even breathe on people to have them. God himself breathed out the Word of God. He breathed it out. Sometimes you can experience inhaling. This has to do with God exhaling his very word. And that's what we hold in these 66 books of the Bible by all of these authors. Luther came to understand God was the authority behind the authority. He was the, God was the inspiration behind the inspired ones. And so we can see here that Martin Luther stood on divine inspiration of scripture. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it says in verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God. It is not God inspiring something by breathing on it or into it. <clears throat> Sometimes we hear people in our day and age say, I was inspired to write this song. God inspired me. This word is very, very misunderstood. Um, what, what God was doing here was breathing out his very words and giving them to his people. It means that God has exhaled this, his very word. When you look here, all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching. It's profitable for reproof. It's profitable for correction and training in righteousness. And the reason it's, it's profitable in these areas of teaching, of reproof, remember the word reproof here is a proactive way where we're, where we're being corrected. It's because we are hard-headed and thick and prideful and God reproves us by his word. He says, no, that's not the way you do it. This is the way you do it. And as God has breathed out that word, so scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. We don't know where we're going sometimes. And God's word is there to correct us and lead the way for training in righteousness. Verse 17, that the man of God may be complete or whole, equipped for every good work. <clears throat> it was the divine inspiration of scripture that made Martin Luther the man he was. It was the discovery of the word of God 
that delivered him from the deep spiritual unrest that had gripped his soul from the Catholic Church. Luther was brought up under a Catholic doctrine, the Catholic Church, and looked at everything the church could offer him for his own salvation. Martin Luther said, he said, I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven for his monkery, it was I. Now, does that sound like someone? Doesn't that sound like Paul? If ever a monk was going to get to heaven for his monkery, it should be me. This, however, did not cure the anguish of the spiritual, of the spiritual alienation from God that Martin Luther was experiencing. He came to understand that he owed everything to the Bible. He stood on the divine inspiration of Scripture. Theonoustos is the Greek word. Theonoustos, divinely breathed. Luther understood God to be the divine source and the author of the Bible. The Holy Spirit has inspired every work. The Holy Spirit has inspired every word every sentence, every paragraph, every chapter, every book, every verb, every noun, every number, every name, every detail, it is completely divinely inspired by the Almighty God. And Martin Luther believed that. He believed in the divine inspiration of God. So we'll move on to point number two. But let me pause. Maybe you have some response or maybe you have a question. Or maybe you have a comment about Martin Luther. Let me just take a second here and give you an hey opportunity. Wayne. Yeah. Question. Yeah. Maybe not. I'm not sure if it's at this point or not, but I was wondering about the different translation of the Bible. So, you know, we have different translation. We have different versions of the, for even the English version, right? And um, some Bible even maybe put, you know, the, the topic or the subtopic of a particular paragraph or sub, you know, within a book. Um, so how do we understand those things as also divinely inspired? Um, yeah, uh, Christian's question has to do with translations. And so I'm going to just kind of summarize um, an answer to that, Christian. And you and I, I would love to talk with you afterwards or, of course, talk to Craig or Nick, or, or any other um, folks here that... But the issue of translation is, is, is really... In fact, in, in 1521, when Martin Luther was called a heretic and kicked out of the Catholic Church, he was kidnapped by his friends and brought to the castle church. And in that year, Martin Luther translated the Greek New Testament that was available. The Latin term... And I can't say the Latin term, but the concept of the Latin term that they were using at the time was back to the source. The source of the Bible in the New Testament is the Greek. There's a little bit of Aramaic, but the Greek is the original language. So translations are really putting, translations are the language of the people. In fact, in 1521, Martin Luther, he translated the entire New Testament within three months. 
So he was, held, he was held there for his own protection by his friends for nine months, and within three months, Martin Luther made a translation. Remember, the Catholic Church would only allow services and the Bible to be spoken in Latin, the Septuagint. They would only allow the Greek New Testament to be spoken in Latin. That was not, that was not the language of the blacksmith. That was not the language of the typical farmer. Latin was the high language. It was the language of the university students. And so it was not in the common. So to just answer your question about translations, when we're talking about the inspiration of the, of the Word of God, yeah, the Word of God is written at that time. Um, the world spoke Greek. And so that's where you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, and you have Jesus. They were Greek speakers. They spoke Greek language. So hope that answers your question. So let me go to point number two. Unless anybody, I'm looking around for comments. Point number two. Not only did Martin Luther stand on the inspiration, good question by the way, Christian, and I appreciate that. Please feel free to ask your question. That's really good. Or your comments. So Martin Luther stood on the inspiration of scripture, inspiration of the word of God, and secondly, he stood in the inerrancy the inerrancy of the word of God. So the scripture contains no errors. That's what this means. The inerrancy of the word of God. Martin Luther believed that the scripture contains no errors. It's true. There's not one mistake in the Bible. And we're not talking about translation mistakes, but we're talking about here that as we see God breathing out his word, there is no mistakes in the Bible. It is the truth and not a fallacy or misconception. It is an inerrant word of God and not a delusion or an inaccuracy. The Bible is uncontaminated and pure because, you know why? God cannot lie. God cannot lie. And if you look at Titus chapter 1, verse 2, and there are other places where it speaks about this, but Titus chapter 1, verse 2, God cannot lie. He never lies. And so Luther believed that the Bible is free from error because of the character and the nature of God Almighty. He never lies. In Psalms chapter 12, verse 6, it says, The word of the Lord is pure like silver refined in a furnace on the ground. Purify seven times. And I don't know if you're familiar with the purification process, but, but you, you can see the purification process where they're taking minerals and they're boiling it down and they're getting all the infirmities to the top of it and wiping it off and they're, the word of God is pure. And so the truth is what is real, Martin believed. The truth is what is real. It is pure. It is true. That's what the, the inerrant word is. It is true. Martin Luther and the world were looking for what is true and what is accurate regarding to issues of life. The Bible is inerrant. It is true. It is true about who man is. It is true about what sin is. It is true about what hell is. It is true about what heaven is. The Bible is true. And it contains no errors about these subjects. It's true about what salvation is. Sanctification. It is true. And there are no errors when it comes to these issues. It is true about who God is, and there are no errors in the Bible 
about these issues. And Martin Luther came to believe that. And you can see for a thousand years, the Roman Catholic Church stood up and twisted scripture, in fact, hid it from the people. And when they would give people glimpses of what they called God's word, they would fill it with errors and deceptions and lies and opposites of who God is. So we can see here that Martin Luther, where did he stand? He stood on the inspiration of God's word. He stood on the inerrancy of God's word. And thirdly, he stood on the authority of God's word. And so if you have any questions or comments, let me know, by the way. He stood on the authority of God's word. Scripture rules. It governs. It's to be bowed down to. It's to be bowed down to because, do you know why? It's the final authority. It's worthy to be bowed down to. And in fact, Martin Luther understood, if ever there's going to be a reformation, if ever there's going to be change, it's because God's word will bring it about. And so scripture rules, it governs. Luther believed the Bible was his only authority. And that's what gave him courage to stand against all of these principalities and to stand against all of these rulers. Satan, uh, Luther came to understand, people know me, and Satan knows me, was one of the things Luther said. (laughs) That was an interesting tidbit of information. But Luther believed the Bible was his only authority, and that's how, and that's who he must yield to, and he must not yield to the Pope. He believed you must yield to the authority of Scripture and not the Pope. The Scripture must rule. It must be the master over us, and it must be the the head of every believer. When you look at Psalms 19, I love Psalms 19. Craig, Craig did Psalms 19 not too long ago as we're going through the Psalms, but Psalms 19 is such a wonderful, wonderful psalm by King David. David wrote this, and when you look at the first six verses, you're going to notice David's looking at God's revelation. He's looking at God's natural revelation. In fact, it's that verse in verse 1 of 19, Psalm 19, 1, all heaven declares. And so you hear for six verses, David reflecting heaven declaring. And he's looking at God's natural revelation, how God has created everything, and he's giving God glory for his natural revelation. Revelation, And then he turns a corner in verse 7 of chapter 19, and he talk, starts talking about God's special revelation. God's inerrant word, God's inspired word, God's authoritative word. And he says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And in verse 8 of chapter 19, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And when you read these few verses from chapter 7 on, you're going to notice every time he gives a description of the Word of God, he then also gives a benefit that you'll get from reading it. How beautiful is that? I love the words of King David. I'm thankful for the Word of God. But the word here, when he's talking about the Word of the law of the Lord, is, is pure, it's perfect. So the Scripture is the divine authority and must reign over every believer. And it must reign over every church, and it must reign over every denomination. The Word of God must do that. He believed that we submit only to the text. It does not submit to us. 
In the Leipzig debate of 1519 with John Eck, and John Eck was a lawyer, by the way. He was one of the Catholic priest's lawyers, a very sharp guy, a very scholarly intellect of the time. And at the Leipzig debate in 1519 with John Eck, the issue was about indulgences. But Luther at that time went deeper and he made the papal authority the fundamental issue. And here's what he declared. A simple layman armed with the scripture is to, be believe, is to be believed above the Pope or the council. Let me read this again. The simple layman armed with scripture is to be believed above the Pope or council without it. For the Pope's decree or indulgences, I say neither the church nor the Pope can establish articles of faith. There must come these must come from Scripture for the sake of Scripture. We should reject Pope and Council, according to Martin Luther. And that was written in Here I Stand, the book that Roland Bainton wrote in 1950. Here I Stand, in his book on Martin Luther. Martin Luther stood on the authority of Scripture. Well, if there's no questions, or let me just pause for a second here and ask any questions or any comments. But well, we see these three things. Uh, Julia? Uh, for Martin Luther, um, you know, because of the Catholic background, and did he, um, what was his view on when someone was regenerated as far as like, you know, with the Catholic view being it happening at baptism, and I think he still held to infant baptism, and so I was just Regeneration kind of and baptism. Yeah, and I was curious if, if he yeah. stood somewhere as far as when was someone regenerated. Yeah. That's a, that's a um, I, I appreciate Julius's comments at the very beginning. This is an off-topic question. <laughs> so, <laughs> and if you know me, I'm going to stay right on topic right here. But, but it's, a, it's a fair thought, and let me just throw the question out, and I will say that I'm not, I'm, I'm just going to be brief on it, on uh, I'm just going to briefly mention it. Julius's question was, what was Martin's view, Martin Luther's view on regeneration? What was Martin Luther's uh, view on infant baptism? Um, I'm not sure about infant baptism, to believe, uh, believe it or not. I'm, I'm not sure. Remember, at this time, there was such corruption that went on in the church, but I can tell you, Martin Luther was starting to discover Scripture and Scripture alone, and only what Scripture says. You don't find anywhere in the New Testament anywhere about infant baptism in the New Testament. You find circumcision in the Old Testament, but nowhere in the New Testament do you find infant baptism. And as far as regeneration goes, it was Martin Luther, after reading Romans chapter 1, verse 17, that his eyes were starting to be opened, that this righteousness that God has in Christ, it was applied to Martin Luther passively. In other words, Martin Luther wasn't actively having to get the righteousness God was passively putting it on him. He understood that about regeneration. In fact, he said, I'm born again. Martin Luther did. So I hope that kind of gives you a little tidbit there of Martin Luther. But good questions. What about regeneration? What about baptism? But let me, 
Let me go here with Martin Luther. Where did he stand, number four? And by the way, keep the questions coming. No questions. These are good questions, uh, Julius. I appreciate it. Clarity of the perspicuity of Scripture. The clarity or perspicuity of Scripture. Perspicuity really means the same thing, clarity. Martin Luther believed of Scripture. The Bible can be clearly understood is the concept. The Bible is lucid. It's like when you go to Hawaii, and we were there not too long ago, and it was really wonderful. I've never been there before. But that water was so lucidly clear, meaning that when you're looking through it, there's no murkiness there. Jesus Jesus confronted the religious leaders in Matthew chapter 12, verse 5. Jesus confronted the religious leaders in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4, on divorce. And Jesus confronted the religious leaders in Matthew 22, verse 31, all about the same issues. And here's what Jesus says. Have you not read? That's what he's saying. And all of those references right there, Jesus is saying to the religious leaders, have you not read? In other words, Jesus is saying to them, right there before your eyes, don't you have a brain cell? Those are in the words of Steve Lawson. Don't you have things between your ears clicking? Can't you read it? The Bible is clear, and yet the religious leaders, for whatever purposes and motivations they have, to distort and to move of God because of their own pride and arrogance and their own subverting the truth to gain the power themselves. And so Jesus is making this reference to the religious leaders. Have you not read? Meaning it's right there in front of you. In Psalms 19 again, looking back David's psalm about special revelation and natural revelation. In Psalms 19.8, under the special revelation side of the psalm, The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Extremely clear is what it means. That word pure there, it means it's extremely clear like water. And there's no murkiness at all. The Bible, remember at the time, was withheld from the people. They were said to be too stupid. They were not allowed to interpret the Bible on their own. They weren't even allowed to read it. In fact, Martin Luther, I think he said he was 20 years old before he even seen a Bible. And he came from a a very well off family. So the people were told by the Catholic Church, if we want your opinion, we'll give it to you, is what they said to the people. The church and the worship services were spoken in Latin purposefully, and the common person could not understand. Scripture was not made clear for the common person. And that's why it goes back to a little bit of a Christian's question In 1521, Martin Luther translated the Greek New Testament into the German language, the common language of the people. That's what translations are. Translations are very difficult, and there are are good translations available to us. And so the people could see now that the Bible does not mention purgatory. When Martin Luther was doing that and giving such a gift by by the providential hand of God, when Martin Luther was able to do that, The game was on. People could now see that purgatory is never mentioned in the Bible. The treasuries of merit are never mentioned in the Bible. The Pope is never mentioned in the Bible. The last rites are never mentioned in the Bible. Salvation through works is never mentioned in the Bible. Infant baptism is never mentioned in the Bible. 
And Martin Luther was coming to grips with this. Celibacy of the priesthood. Can you imagine the torture that some of these men had to go through? And in fact, didn't, because it was just a law that they could not have marital intimacy and for years lived under that bondage. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what flesh that that just stirred up? If you know anything about the law, it just stirred up the flesh. This was not found in the Bible. The people of the 16th century were outraged that they had been lied to over many, many, many years. Some even went to the point where they were starting to tear down the churches because they were so upset. Fathers and mothers could now read the word of God to their children. The people of God were reforming because of the clarity of scripture. Martin Luther believed in the perspicuity or the clarity of scripture. And so we see here these four things. Number five, the sufficiency of Scripture. You see here the Bible is complete, it's whole, it's lacking in nothing. It's completely sufficient for the salvation and the holy living of God's people. Going back to Psalms 19.7, the law is perfect. And what that word perfect there means, it's entirely true. It's completely perfect. It's wholly good. And it can be completely trustworthy. Look, at the world is going to want to teach us tactics. It's going to want to teach us methods. It's going to want to deal with outward issues. The Bible deals with the heart. That's what the Bible does. And it's sufficient to address any human need. And for anyone to say it doesn't, you're moving away from the sufficiency of Scripture and you're moving down a road that Martin Luther understood very clearly, it leads to death. And so the Bible is trustworthy. Luther once wrote, nothing helps me more powerfully against the devil, the world, the flesh, and all the evils and all the evil thoughts that can occupy, occupy one, oneself with God's word, having conversation about it and contemplating it comfort yourselves with the word of God he continues to say the preeminent consolation or the preeminent relief Luther believed apart from the sufficient word of God no one could be saved or sanctified in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 11, listen to this. Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 11, about the sufficiency of the word of God. In verse 8, we know that Isaiah is getting a, pro Isaiah is getting a vision from the Lord. And it goes for, I believe it's 66 chapters, if my mind is working well this morning. But Isaiah 55, verse 8, here's what the Lord is, is saying. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither my ways your ways, declares the Lord. We know this. And then if you look at verse 11, so shall my word be, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, and we're looking at that, God breathe, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish all that which I purpose, and I shall, and I shall succeed in the very, in the things for which I send it, says, says the Lord. In verse 11 of Isaiah 55, we see here the word of God is sufficient. 
And so all scripture, all scriptures are sufficient. This is, it goes back and I won't read it again, but 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17. The scriptures are sufficient that the man of God may be complete and, and equipped for every good work. So the scriptures are sufficient to save and to arm the believer for the battle that lies ahead. Every, <clears throat> so one, one thing that you might find interesting is other books. People under this category think, what about other books? Are other books good? We were, went through the Heidelberg Catechism. Is, is that good? There are purposes for other books and these things. One of the things that was mentioned that Martin Luther talked about with well, other books, they serve to bring a perspective on the scriptures. Martin Luther wrote a lot of books. Here I Stand was one of them. The Bondage of the Will was another one. He was responding to Erasmus's book on the free will of man. And so other books are important because they're bringing godly perspective. Not, not all books are good, but, but there needs to be a perspective on other books. Martin Luther... He would not die for what the church fathers had to say, but he would die for what Jesus had to say. He would die for what, Mar for what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John would say and what the apostles would say through the word of God. Martin, Martin Luther believed in the sufficiency of scripture. All right, one last one. But I will pause if you have a question or a comment. Number six. The Bible is indestructible. It's the abiding, the durable, the everlasting, the imperishable, the eternal, and the indestructible book. Martin Luther believed that. When you listen to Jeremiah 23, verse 29, here's what the Lord says. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks rocks in pieces? Gives you an interesting visual about what the Lord says about his indestructible word. Martin Luther said about Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Martin Luther said, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. When you read verse 12, for the word of the Lord is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the divisions of the soul and of the spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It is the indestructible weapon. No one creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom, whom must all give an account. He also said, I'd rather than all my, I would rather that all my books would disappear. Holy scriptures would be left alone. Luther believed the Bible was the everlasting word of God. Okay, so where did he stand? We know he stood on sola scriptura. We know he stood on scripture alone. Why did he stand? And this is an easy part of it right here. And I'll just, on your outline, if you have a pen, you're looking at those things, but why did he stand? Martin Luther understood to abandon the word of God would, to be, would be to abandon these four realities. And so here's reality number one that Martin Luther completely understood. If he abandoned the word of God, that would be to abandon God himself. 
Martin Luther believed if you abandon God's word, you're abandoning God, you're abandoning God himself. It, would, it was not safe to abandon God and his word. When you look at Judges chapter 10, verses 13, the Lord says, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you or I'll deliver you no more. Martin Luther was very concerned about this. To abandon sola scriptura would be to abandon God himself. Secondly, it would be to abandon Jesus Christ himself. Martin Luther understood to abandon the word of God, to abandon the scriptures, it would be to abandon Jesus, Jesus Christ himself. Do you know the word of God and Jesus are synonymous? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh in John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. To abandon the scriptures would be to abandon Jesus Christ himself. In Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. And so Martin Luther came to understand and really believe if you abandon the word of God, you have abandoned Christ himself. And then thirdly, to abandon sola scriptura, to abandon scripture, it would be to abandon the truth. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, here the Apostle Paul is teaching his young protege, Timothy, the young pastor. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Paul is saying to Timothy, do your best to present, yourselves to God, to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling or rightly dividing the word of truth. The word is true, and to abandon scripture would be to abandon reality itself. And Martin Luther understood the Bible. To abandon the Bible would be to abandon the truth of God. It would be to abandon the mind of God. It would be to abandon the character of God. It would, it would be to abandon all reality in itself. It would be to abandon God's truth and then enter into a world of deception and lies. And so Martin Luther would not abandon the truth. And then lastly, to abandon sola scriptura would be to abandon the gospel itself. When you read Galatians chapter 1, you're going to see Paul and how upset he is because the gospel has been twisted and put on its head by those false teachers who have entered in and are piling legalism against the graces of the gospel. Martin Luther knew the gospel is not an invention of man. The gospel came from God and God himself. The gospel is an imperishable seed that God, the Holy Spirit, uses to implant into the hearts of man. And that's how God saves him. When you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, Peter's making this case, and he's saying this, to those Christians who are struggling, and, and in fact, they're on the run. Peter says, since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of an imperishable seed, through the living and abiding word of God. The word of God is implanted, the imperishable word of God is implanted into the hearts of people, and the Spirit of God 
blossoms that into a salvation work. So in conclusion, Martin Luther stood on the word of God. For Luther, it was sola scriptura, and this is exactly where we must stand on the word of God alone. We must expect the preaching that we sit under to be the word of God. We must expect the worship that we are under to be based on scripture alone. When Martin Luther was asked about the Reformation, and this is our last quote and our conclusion here. When Martin Luther was asked about the Reformation, here was his response. Martin Luther just wanted the word of God. I simply taught, I simply preached, and I wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept and I drank with my friends, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such loss upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. Had I desired to foment trouble, I could have brought great bloodshed upon Germany indeed. I could have started such a game that even the emperor would not have been safe. But what would it have been? Mere fool's play. I did nothing and I let the word do its work. What do you suppose? Is Satan, is Satan's thought when one tries to do the thing by kicking up, kicking up a row or a commotion, he sits back in hell and he thinks, oh, what a fine game the poor fools are up to now. But when we speak the word of God alone and let it alone do its work, that distresses him. For it is almighty and it takes captive the hearts. And when the hearts are captive, the work itself will fall of itself. This was Martin Luther's quote on the Reformation. Martin Luther did nothing and the word of God did absolutely everything. That's what he believed. So let me pray for us and we'll be done. Lord, we, we're grateful again for this time. Uh, what, what, what an amazing, what an amazing um, life that you gave Martin Luther. May we exalt Christ as we contemplate it. And Lord, may we exalt you and may we be just eternally grateful for your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.